Open with me to uh, the book of Micah. It's on page 1440 of the Blue Pew Bible. Courtroom dramas have really taken off in the last 10 or 15 years. I don't know if you've actually taken time to notice that. Uh, Programs such as Suits, The Good Wife, Conviction, Boston Legal, Raising the Bar, JAG, and the like, they just are all over our, our programming today. And then there's the whole Law and Order franchise. Have you noticed this? There's Law and Order, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, Law and Order Trial by Jury, Law and Order UK, Law and Order LA, and it just goes on and on. I think it's not a coincidence that this boom in, in courtroom dramas on television where we see justice actually being meted out is a response maybe to the lack of justice we see in our own society. Where corruption in our leadership, our society, the moral slide, if you will, of our nation. And we're looking for some place, somewhere, where there is a standard. Somewhere where justice is reigning, and maybe we're finding that on our television sets, and maybe that's why there have been so many. We really do want some place where people are held accountable, and that where justice does still reign, even if it's in a fictitious courtroom. And perhaps that's why Micah, if you read it this week, is indeed a breath of fresh air in that respect. Judah and Israel were very much like us in the, the pervasive corruption of their societies. They were indeed on a moral slide at the time that Micah came on the scene. And Yahweh sends Micah and puts them both on trial. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Micah a Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. A vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all you are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Martin Luther was fond of saying about the minor prophets that they have a queer way of talking. I love Martin Luther, right? They have a queer way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, Ramble off on one thing and then to the next so that you can't make heads or tails of them or see what they're getting at. If you read Micah this week, perhaps you felt the same way Martin Luther did. What's going on here? There seems to be, you know, so much confusion here. Who's he talking to? It's hard to get the flow of Micah. He jumps around from, from judgment to blessing, from exile to restoration, from being uh, a conquered nation to being a conquering nation where is Assyria is concerned. And who is this prophecy about? Judah or Israel? 
So a good way to approach Micah is to think of it in a courtroom drama. A good way to get your arms around this, your intellectual arms around this, is to think of Micah as court is in session. I guess you could say that of all the prophets. That they, that's basically what all the prophets are doing. They're coming and they are, they are covenant lawsuit lawyers. Putting the people on trial. And we see that in the language of courtroom here in verse 2. The Lord may witness against you. The sovereign Lord is going to be a witness against two defendants. Two defendants. Israel and Judah. Those are the two people that Micah is talking to. He's talking to both the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. Look with me at verses 3 and following. God's word says, look. And this is the Lord speaking. The Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of earth. The mountains melt beneath them and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down the slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken into pieces. All her temple gifts will be burnt with fire. I will destroy all her images since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes. As the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go out barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal. I will moan like an owl. For her, her wound is incurable. And it has come to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people. Even Jerusalem itself. The two defendants that are clearly in view are Israel and Judah. And perhaps that's why it makes Micah, reading Micah and getting a handle on it, a little more confusing than some other prophets. It really does have two objects that he is prophesying against. Micah came on the scene in the late 8th century, probably sometime between 750 and 700. There he had a a decades-long ministry. He was from a small town just southwest of Jerusalem, and he was prophesying over the course of 30, perhaps 40, maybe even 50 years. And that time period at the end of the 8th century was a critical time period because it was a time when Assyria was, was threatening. Assyria was the superpower and threatening Israel and Judah. And as we find out, and as we know later on... We, God used Assyria as, as his arm of judgment to take away the northern ten tribes in 722. So this is a critical era in the history of the people of God. And Micah is prophesying throughout that era. That is Israel's incurable wound we just read about in verse 9. They went away into exile and never came back. 
But right now, they are in the last days of their existence, and so it adds to the confusion. Some of the prophecies are about Israel, and some of the prophecies are about Judah. But what is clear, that both are in view. They are both the defendants in this cosmic courtroom, if you will. And then he levels the charges against them. Look with me, turn with me to verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 2. The Lord, through Micah, says this, Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, son of Moab, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. What God is saying here is, is, don't you remember me? I'm not your enemy. Don't you remember how I cared for you? That despite all you have done, remember who I am. I am for you, not against you. You have left me. You have been unfaithful. I have not been unfaithful. And then he goes on throughout the book of Micah to level four basic charges against both Israel and Judah. Four basic charges. Flip back with me to chapter 3 and you see the first charge is religious corruption. Chapter 3, verse 11. There Micah preaches, Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. And the prophets tell fortunes for money. And they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. What we see here is a corrupt priesthood teaching for a price. We see prophets are are teaching, are are prophesying and, and being swayed by money that people are giving them. Tell us that we're not going to go into exile. Tell us that the Lord is not going to judge us and here's some money for it. That's what's going on there. Telling people the exact opposite of what God is actually saying. Telling them what their ears want to hear. Just tell me what we want to hear. They don't even care if it's true. Just tell me what I want to hear. We see throughout the book that they're telling the people that they're not going to be conquered by Assyria. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're safe. We're God's people. And Micah is saying, no, be careful. Don't presume on the mercy of God. This was common in the Old Testament. How prophets were paid off. Kings paid prophets exactly for that reason. You think of, of uh, in, second, in 1 Kings 22 when Ahab had those 400 prophets that were telling him exactly what he wanted to hear. And then there's that one prophet. If you know that story, it's a, it's a great story to read this week. Micaiah. 
And Jehoshaphat says, isn't there another prophet that we can hear from? And Ahab says, well, there is one, this guy Micaiah, but he always tells me bad news. I don't want to hear from him. Isn't that how we are? Just tell me the good news. Don't tell me the bad news. We see this in Jeremiah with the false prophet Hananiah, and we see it even mentioned here with Balaam. He was paid by Balak to come down and curse Israel. If you know that story in Numbers, you know that God supernaturally turned his cursing into a blessing. The charge is widespread and various about religious corruption in Judah and Israel, just as it is in our culture today. 2 Timothy 4 3 tells us that we experience the same thing. It says in, in, in the coming days, people will gather around them teachers that will tell them exactly what they want to hear. They're, what their itching ears, it even says, want to hear. I think of the health wealth preachers that we hear all over. They attract such copious amounts of people because they tell people exactly what they want to hear. I mean, you can even hear the echo from the Old Testament, from Micah. They teach that because you're a Christian, no harm is going to come to you. They almost say verbatim what we just read in chapter 3, verse 11. Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. God will bless you with security and comfort and ease and money. Don't worry. You're God's people. God wants you to be happy. Isn't that the prevailing message that you're getting from these people? We know that's not true. This world is terribly broken. Terribly broken. And we see this in the fact that the wicked do prosper, don't they? That's an echo of the Old Testament. And awful things do happen to faithful people. It's just not that simple. Nonetheless, When those things are preached, people gather. And that's exactly what's happening here in Micah. False prophets were attractive in Micah's time as they are now. You don't have to worry about anything. Assyria is not going to harm us. We're okay. We're God's people. The charges are not just religious. The second charge that is leveled throughout Micah is political injustice. Again, all you have to do is look at chapter 3, verse 11. We see the same thing. Her leaders judge for a bribe. They're involved too. It's widespread political injustice going on. You know, we think that pay to play is a new thing. It's found right here in Micah. Third charge that Yahweh levels against them is social injustice. Look with me at chapter 2, the first two verses in chapter 2. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home and a fellow man of his inheritance. What Micah is describing here is that family land... Land that God allotted to certain clans and families was being taken away. Again, we think imminent domain is new. Not so. They were coming and taking these people's lands away. Land was the center 
of people's lives. It was part of their identity. And to take that away was to rip away the, the, the core of the family. And lastly, the charge of moral corruption. The fourth charge in chapter 6 we see that, we see it throughout, but in chapter 6, verse 10 and following, we see this. Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures? And the short ephah, which is accursed, shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Her rich men are violent, her people are liars. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. Micah here is leveling the charge of stealing from God's people. These are charges that Yahweh is bringing against Israel and Judah. God is literally saying through Micah, you're not living like my people. You're straying for how I've told you to live. I am a holy God and I require holy living. I am a just God and I require just living. Brings to mind the many times in in the Old Testament where God says, Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I, the Lord, am holy. That's how God expects us to live. A holy life. Those are the requirements for God's people, and that's what Micah is reminding them of. In an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, musician, one of my favorite musicians, Paul Simon, offers his thought of what God requires of us. Listen to what he thinks God requires of us. He said, The only thing that God requires of us is to enjoy life. And to love. It doesn't matter if you accomplish anything. You don't have to do anything but appreciate that you're alive. And love. That's the whole point. Micah stands in contrast to that. God does have standards. God does have requirements for his people. If you look down in chapter 6, if you're there, in verse 8, probably one of the more famous verses in Micah, he tells us the requirements of living. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's a hard standard, isn't it? Does anybody here act justly perfectly? Does anybody here walk humbly perfectly? Does anybody here actually love mercy? Love doling out mercy to people. It's a hard standard to act justly. Professor Cornwell West defines justice as what love looks like in public. I like that. Justice is what love looks like in public. We're to be agents of God's love in a fallen, broken world. Is that how we predominantly act? 
to love mercy. Do we love mercy? Do we delight in giving mercy? Or are we quick to jump to judgment? God wants us to reflect him in this way. American scholar Albert Barnes says, nowhere do we imitate God more than in mercy. Finally, the requirement to walk humbly. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, and I think this is incredibly challenging. I sometimes think that the very essence of the whole Christian position and the secret of a successful spiritual life is just to realize two things. I must have complete, absolute confidence in God and no confidence in myself. Sounds almost blasphemous in today's culture, doesn't it? I can't have any, any confidence in myself. I mean, I, I remember a time when I was counseling and, and I told this person that you, you have to doubt your, your first reaction to things. You have to, you have to capture that and stop that. Not that it's always wrong, but, but analyze it to see if it's a humble position. Humility has no confidence in the self. What a hard standard. Those are the requirements. And Yahweh brings these charges against his people that they have failed in these requirements. You're not acting justly. You're not delighting in mercy and doling it out freely. You're not acting humbly. And in Micah 6, 1, Yahweh answers Israel with the charges. Look at 6, 1. God said, stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. And they do. Israel and Judah are given voice by Micah. And this is how... They, he answers Micah. This is how the people answer God's charges. This is their defense. Look down at verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord? And how should I bow down and exalt God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Here Micah is personifying the people's defense to God's charges. And it's such a weak defense. It's one that we use all the time. Look at the progression, if you will, from burnt offerings to choice calves to a thousand rams to rivers of oil to the firstborn. You know what the people's answer to God is? What do you expect of us? What do you want from us? Your standard is too high. We can't do that. 
You want our firstborn. We even say that. That's, that's entered into our vernacular in English, don't we? When something costs so much, we say, oh, he's asking for my firstborn. And that's what the people are saying. It's too much, Lord. The standard, the requirement, the cost is too high for us to walk in your way. We respond like that many times, don't we? That's too high, Lord. That's too much. It's too much of a sacrifice. We chafe at the perfection of which Scripture holds us, don't we? If you're a careful Scripture reader, if you're a careful Bible reader, you understand this. The Bible says, the whole Old Testament says what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be holy because I am holy. Be just because I am just. If you call yourself my people, that's who you should be. We chafe at that and we loosen the, the, the law, don't we? we? We change the code to fit our own behavior. We make them into our own. There was a burglar that was caught named Dennis Lee Curtis who was arrested in 1992 in Rapid City, South Dakota. In his wallet, upon his arrest, the police found a piece of paper on which was written his moral code as a thief. And this is what it said. I will not kill anyone unless I have to. I'll take cash and food stamps, no checks. I'll rob only at night. I will not wear a mask. I will not rob mini marts or 7-Eleven stores. If I get chased by the cops on foot, I will get away. If chased by a vehicle, I will not put lives of innocent people in jeopardy. I will rob only seven months out of the year. And I will enjoy robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. Now that thief had a moral code. It was a moral code. When he stood before, it was a moral code that was flawed, right? Because when he stood before the state at a higher code, He was found guilty. And it's the same with us. We too have of our own moral codes. Each one of us has developed our own moral codes. And, And it's a flawed moral code. We pull out our little sheets of paper when we stand before God. And we say, look, I lived by this. And he says... That's not my moral code. There's a higher moral code. And you haven't lived by it. When you pull out your moral code that you have written, when you stand before God, how will it compare? How have you changed God's law to fit your life? How have you lessened his standards in order to achieve them? Well, the verdict comes down in Micah. The verdict and the sentence. And the sentence is guilty. Look at verse 16 of chapter 6. 
You have observed the statutes of Omri and the practices of Ahab's house, and you have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision, and you will bear the scorn of the nations. Omri and Ahab were perhaps some of the most corrupt kings in Israel. And what God is saying is, yeah, you've created your own moral code. It is in the style of Omri and Ahab, and you've lived by that. And I find you guilty because there's a higher code. And the sentence is death. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. The wages of their own moral code is exile, is destruction, is death. And there's a terrifying picture of this in chapter 1 that we read earlier. Chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, we see God coming in judgment. And, and the picture is one of terror. It says, look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like rushing water down a slope. Here we see the awful coming of the Lord. And nothing can stand up to it. The image that Micah is painting is he's coming and he's crushing as he's walking. And valleys are splitting apart and mountains are crumbling. This is a powerful, almighty God. He's coming in judgment. Crushing as he comes. Where he steps, things get crushed. Turn with me to chapter 7 because I want you to see that picture of God. But I want you to see how he crushes in another way. He comes in crushing judgment. But Micah says, starting in verse 18, Who is like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of your inheritance? Do you, not, you do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Yes, he's coming in crushing judgment, but he's also coming in crushing mercy. And we only see those two side by side at the cross of Jesus Christ. His mercy and his wrath. I find it interesting that Micah describes both his judgment and his mercy as treading, as stepping, as crushing. It's a picture of the cross. 
on September 17, 1692, the only recorded death by pressing occurred. Pressing is a form of execution where a person is laid naked on their back, their arms and legs are tied and stretched out, and heavy stone slabs are laid on their chest. On that day in 1692, Sheriff George Corwin led Corey Giles, accused of witchcraft, to a pit in an open field beside the Salem Jail in Massachusetts. And before the court and the witnesses, he was stripped of his clothing. They laid him on the ground and they placed boards on his chest. Six men then lifted immensely heavy stones and laid them on the boards on top of Giles. The written record of the punishment noted that Corey did not cry out at all. Over the course of two days, the weights slowly crushed the life out of him. And he was asked over and over during those two days, if he would plead guilty. He never said a word. However, just before his death, Giles managed to catch his breath long enough to say just two words. More weight. More weight. Those were the last words he spoke. We have the last words of Jesus on the cross, and one of them, he looks out and he looks at the people and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know what Jesus was saying there? More weight. Crush me, not them. Punish me for their sins and show them mercy. Let your wrath fall on me and let your mercy be shown to them. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Micah lodges that good news in chapter 5, verse 2, when he tells us where this hope is coming from, Bethlehem. In Matthew's gospel in chapter 2, when the wise men came, Herod called his teachers and said, where is this Messiah? Because he wanted to kill Jesus. And they took them back to this prophecy. He'll be born in Bethlehem. There is hope that will come from Bethlehem. See, the cross was planned all along. Where wrath and mercy intersect. Today in our public reading of scripture, we read from Isaiah chapter 53, didn't we? Now let me read that again in light of what you just heard. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. More weight. Cause him to suffer. Though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Good news of the gospel is that we do have one who acted perfectly justly. We do have one who walked perfectly humbly in this life. We do have one that delights in giving mercy so much so that he went to the cross 
and exchanged his perfect righteousness with our perfect sin. And he bore the wrath of God. And we benefit from that. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And I pray that you will apply it to our lives by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.